sacrifice with these hands lifted high hear my song hear my cry I will bring in the uh, cafeteria, we put coffee in the foyer, and it was impossible to get people to come back in from the foyer after we had coffee and connection time. So I'm going to try and invite them to come back in from the foyer, but it's going to be a fruitless effort. <laughs> we just, we just, uh, we don't know how to behave in a foyer at Jericho. We've never had one. <laughs> So it's a new deal for us. <laughs> well, um, as we move into our teaching time together this afternoon, I want to uh, share just a little bit of uh, some of my own. We shared a little bit of building this journey, but I want to share just a little bit uh, of my own faith journey. And I've shared some of this in, in this space before. And some of you have reflected out how it's mirrored some of your own experiences. Um, I, was, I was raised in a very small town and a very conservative setting. My parents came to faith when I was a small child and they didn't know what to do uh, because they hadn't grown up in a religious home and so they thought, well, let's just take them to church and see if we can get some religion in the kid and in our family, and so we did. And if you were to ask me during that season of my life, hey Brad, what is Christianity all about? I think I would have said something like, well basically my understanding would, but that time was, don't do anything bad, uh, otherwise God's gonna be angry at you. And you see, getting that list right was quite important. You had to make sure that you had the right things that you were avoiding at all costs. So, you know, you shouldn't lie, you didn't drink, you know, you didn't have sex with people that you weren't married to. The list was really long, uh, and some of it was sort of subcultural, I would say. But I also would have said that you should do good things because then God will love and bless you. And getting that list right was also seemed very important to me growing up. So you should go to church, you should read your Bible and pray every day, you should give money uh, to work of ministry. And what I realized is I could be very, very good at this game. If that was the rules that Christianity was to be played by, then I could do it. I could memorize all the right Bible verses. I went to all the right schools and camps. But there was just one problem with my understanding. And that was, no matter if I did all of those things and avoided all of those things, the deepest part of me was still not being actively transformed. I was playing at religion and a religious game, but my heart was not actively being touched and changed in any meaningful way. Philosopher and author uh, Dr. Dallas Willard in his exceptional book, The Divine Conspiracy, has a label for this, and he calls it the gospel of sin management. 
And it's like putting on a mask and pretending on the outside that you have it all together, that you're doing great, that you're a really good person. And you can convince people of that for a really long time. But deep down, you're not dealing with the real, deeper issues of the heart. And see, here at Jericho, in addition to moving into our new permanent home, we're working our way through one of the books of the Bible for people who are looking to go beyond a gospel of sin management and actively let God, by His Holy Spirit, touch and work and change our hearts and get at the root of some of the things in our lives. Uh, It's a book in the New Testament called Colossians, and it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by an early Christian leader named Paul, and he wrote it to a group of people in the city of Colossae, and they were trying to follow Jesus. They were trying to figure this thing out, and so Paul wrote some advice for them on their journey, and he writes to them to explain particularly how Jesus is greater than anything else that they could experience or imagine. And so that's our series title for this fall is in the book of Colossians, Greater Than. See, the Colossian Christians had come out of a culture that was all about rule-keeping. They'd grown up learning to manage or placate the gods of their culture by appeasing them with just the right offerings. They'd been taught how to worship the empire by just giving the right amount of money, keeping your head down, and uh, keeping things aligned and moving in the right direction. They knew how to do all the right rituals so that their crops could be successful. Uh, they, a lot of them worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then they came into a place where Jesus began to change their hearts and their lives. They came to become a part of a Christian community. And so they have to figure out how do these old ideas of how this religious system that we used to live under works, and now we're being informed that there's new kind of rules about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What does that mean and look like? And when they came to Saving Faith, they brought with them a lot of the baggage from their old journeys of how to relate to God. And so Paul wrote them with corrective instruction to let them know that God doesn't want a relationship with humanity based on manipulation or empty rituals. And so Paul picks up on, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15 and down to verse 20, what we understand is the earliest example of a Christian song or worship song or poem that was written. It was like a hymn that they would sing, and it talked about Christ and His supremacy and His lordship over all things. And so, for the last two weekends, we looked at that, and I'm going to pick up our uh, thought in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, or you can do that on your devices, And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, and the text will come up on the screen uh, behind me. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul's writing to this group, and he says, you were once far away from God. You were God's enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and your actions, yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ 
in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So Pastor Wally last weekend took us through the section of chapter one uh, that talked about the end of this hymn. And the book of Colossians paints this picture that at the core of Christianity is kind of a, a bad news, good news kind of message. And the bad news is uh, not just generic, it's actually personal. It touches each and every one of our lives. Scriptures say in Colossians chapter 1 that not just some other people's evil thoughts and actions have separated them from God, but my evil thoughts and my actions have separated me from God. See, all the major world religions have a teaching to help us understand what's wrong with the world. What's the problem that we see around us? And some of them will grant a generic sense of evil exists, but Christianity takes that one step further and reminds us that what's wrong with the world isn't just out there in some way. It's actually in here. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. After surviving the horrors of the Russian gulag and work camps, novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this. The one thing that he reflected on was that the line between good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. See, the bad news is personal. The bad news is that our minds, our wills, our behaviors evidence opposition to God. And this has created a separation and a distance greater than we can fix ourselves. And Colossians uses very dire language and strong language to help us understand our predicament. We are far away from God, Paul says. We were enemies of God. We were separated from God. And yet, while we were still in this state, God chose to act. God chose to demonstrate his love toward us. And this is the good news side of the equation. And friends, this is the greatest good news that has ever been declared and proclaimed and that history has ever known because God decided to act in love and move towards us. See, just like the bad news is personal, the good news is also deeply personal. Christ's work of reconciliation, Paul says, it didn't just accomplish something out there in the cosmic realm. It wasn't just that Christ took authority over all of the powers and principalities and rulers of this world. He actually accomplished something personal for you and for me. Look at the number of times that the text in Colossians 1 uses personal pronouns. God has reconciled you to himself. As a result, you have been brought into his presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. 
See, there's images here that Paul wants us to help understand what's going on. And the language would be really quite familiar to his first listeners and hearers because they grew up, if they were Jewish, understanding their history and their participation as a culture in the sacrificial system. And so, one of the languages that Paul uses is Old Testament language of worship, the language of holy and blameless. See, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, you brought something to worship, and you brought something to atone for your sins, for the sins of the people. And it wasn't just any lamb. It was a blameless, spotless, pure lamb that you brought. And so what Paul is doing here is he's capturing that language and saying, oh yes, we're bringing something pure and blameless and holy into the presence of Almighty God, but it's not a lamb. That's already been done. It's you. You are being presented as holy and blameless. No defects. And Paul presents this as a radical and powerful truth that's richer and deeper than anything that the gospel of sin management could ever get after. The other language that he uses is uh, from the world of economics and commerce, this language of without a single fault. And so this is the language um, of in business, if in the ancient world you needed to borrow money from somebody, but you uh, went to them and said, please, can I borrow some money from you? But of course, you know, in the ancient world, no credit cards, uh, no fancy and sophisticated banking systems and online records and any of that type of stuff. It was just all paper. And so if you wanted to borrow money from somebody, you would go to them and essentially you would, you'd write on a ledger, I owe you, and then however much you borrowed from them. And this was the record of the transaction. And so you were each going to keep a copy of that so that everybody was clear that you were indebted in some way to this person and you were going to pay them back. And so this document, this IOU, recognized that you were in the hole. You owed them something and you needed to pay it back. It's a little bit like those Credit Counseling Society commercials where the person, the debt, gets on the person's back, and it follows them around, and it weighs them down. And so Paul's using this same kind of language to help them understand, listen, you owed someone something because of your willful ignorance and sin. But because of your evil thoughts and actions, you're in the deficit position. You're in the hole when it comes to holiness. But what Christ did on the cross is he demonstrated that God is greater than the principalities and powers and that God is supreme over all of creation, but also Christ accomplished something deeply personal. It's like he took the IOU note and he just ripped it up and said, it's done. We're not going to talk about that anymore. It's been paid off in full. And so when you and I choose to be part of Christ's family, 
that giant IOU that was written over your life, you become unindebted because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, as the hymn says. See, friends, that is the part that God chose in his grace and mercy to undertake in the plan and the story of redemption. And it has a past dynamic to it that Christ has reconciled us to God on the cross. It has a present dynamic to it that Christ is bringing us into a place of being more and more like him. We're being refashioned and shaped into the image of Christ, and it also has a future dynamic to it that God intends for us to fully enjoy that which we currently await in hope and anticipation. I mean, I could preach like 75 messages on just that, but we got to keep going because I have a four-point sermon, and I'm apparently only on point one of four. So, let's just pause for a minute and think about the implications of this for you and I. And the one thing that I want you to hear is because of what Jesus has done, friends, our confidence does not come from what we do. It comes from resting in what Christ has done and accomplished. See, we're going to do a lot of stuff in this space. We have lots of plans and intentions and purposes. But the things that we do are not going to make God love Jericho Ridge any more and love you any more than he does. Our confidence in our right standing comes not from what we do, but from what Christ has done. And that is one of the core differences between Christianity and any other religion. See, one of our core values here at Jericho is transformational truth. And that means that each of us is at a different point of transformation on our journey. But it also means that none of us have fully arrived. And so I want to just remind us as we move into this new season of Jericho that there are no perfect people allowed in this building. So if you're not yet perfect and you're an in-process person, welcome aboard for the journey. You're welcome to join us here because we're learning to draw our identity and our worth not from what we do but from who we belong to. Resting in the finished and ongoing work of Christ who's transforming us. So that's the part that God has done. Let's look at the part that you and I also have to play. And that starts in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, but you, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as Christ's servant to proclaim it. 
When I was a teenager, I took sailing lessons. Apparently, I successfully passed them, although Joel Schachter can attribute to the fact we were up at Camp Bob working to put some tents up uh, there in the spring, and I have forgotten every knot they taught me how to tie in sailing. So I had to rely on Joel and his Boy Scout days to kind of get us uh, making sure that things were cinched up and that the tents didn't fall down on the kids when they came for summer camp later on. Uh, and how many of you can tie a good knot? How many of you? All right, a few of you. All right, so, you know, we're, I don't know if we'll need you around here for stuff like that. We'll have to check in with the facility team and see what kind of big plans are needed for that. But uh, you won't want me to be tying knots if something needs to be secured. Because I remember vividly one time we had gone uh, to, to down to the dock uh, for sailing on the Lake of Bays in Muskoka in Ontario. And I went to the dock and there was no boat there at the dock. And I realized that I had tied it up the night before. And then as we looked around the lake, sure enough, there floating out way in the middle of the lake was the boat that I was responsible for and was supposed to have tied securely to the dock. You see, my knot didn't hold, and the boat had drifted out into the lake, and we needed to get out a boat and rescue it. That's the image that's being used here in this verse, that God has done God's part and brought us close to God in Christ, but we also have a part to play. And our part is don't drift. Our part is to continue to believe the truth and stand firmly in it. Well, how do I do this, Brad, you might ask? How do I prevent drift from settling in in my life? Well, part of it can be spiritual practices, continued regular connection with a community of people that can hold you both in an accountable place, but also hold you when your faith is weak and frail. It can be personal practices like scripture intake. Uh, in our app, we've got Project 345. It's built right in there. You can spend three minutes and 45 seconds, five days a week, engaging in God's word with other people in our community, staying close, listening and attentive to what God is saying by his spirit, um, one of the practices I'm finding helpful for me these days is silence and solitude because it's really busy in this season of Jericho's life with lots of stuff to do and building and all this kind of stuff. And so I find, uh, and Wally and I were just away this week for a day just carving it out and saying, we just need to go away and spend time praying, listening to the Lord, attending to what he's saying to us. Otherwise, you just drift. And so the question that I would have for you is, are there areas of life that you think there might be some drift setting in? Might be a sense of distance opening up. What are the areas that you would name? And then what are the actions then that you would take in God's grace and strength, it could prevent you from drifting any further. What's something that you feel nudged or prompted by God's Spirit to do that would help correct or arrest that sense of 
drift. Maybe take a minute and just write it down somewhere in your phone. Maybe there's an activity this week that you want to start or get back to. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a small group or a relationship, someone that you want to call and say, hey, would you help me kind of get back on track in this area of my life? Maybe it's an accountability relationship. Do whatever you can by God's grace and by his strength and empowerment not to drift. Paul continues in verse 24 of chapter 1. And he says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God's given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, or for non-Jews. And this is the secret, that Christ lives in you. And this gives you the assurance of sharing in his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with the wisdom that God's given us because we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. And that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works in me. The big thing that stood out to me in this section was just simply that Paul's so clear that the good news is for sharing. The good news of what God has done in Christ is not something that is just for us sitting in this room. It's something that the world needs to hear and know. This is a message for everyone. See, in the city of Colossae, there was a religious system called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a cult based on secret or special knowledge. And if you knew the right words or phrases, you could get into the secret meetings. And if you paid the right entrance fee to the right people, you were in. If you dressed the right way, you had the right civic and connections, the right heritage, you were in. And that can sound a little bit like some religious groups. But this reminds us that Christ came to bust up all that kind of religious exclusivism and extend the message and the invitation and the table to all. Because God's deepest and richest desire is to reveal the riches and glory of Christ to the world that the world would share and know his love. And friends, we have a part to play in that. And others have a part to play in that. And this building is going to have a part to play in that as well. In that declaration of God's welcome and the declaration of his love. If you watch the news, you know that uh, they tell us about a thousand people per month are moving into the city of Surrey. And a lot of them are choosing to make their home right around here. And Willoughby's about halfway through its build out. So we have a story to share, not just 
to the nations where God has called us, but also to our neighbors who number in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And here's where sometimes I get a little bit tripped up because I think to myself, oh man, it would just be really great if I had it all together and then I could start sharing about God's good news with my neighbors and people around me, his love and his goodness. Because if I go out and I start to talk to them about his love and his goodness, they're gonna need to see it in my life. And I know that they don't see it in my driving when I'm in the neighborhood. And I know that sometimes when I'm out and about, I yell at my kids, and so I immediately start to think to myself, oh, if I start to talk about God's love and goodness, my neighbors will say, that guy's a Christian? And then the other neighbors will be like, yeah, he's not, he's a pastor. (laughs) And so sometimes I get tripped up and think, oh man, it would be so great if I had it all together before I ventured out with the message of God's love for others. And this is one reason I love Paul's honesty in this. He talks about how he struggles and how he works and how he doesn't always get it right. But the one thing that we can take from this as hope is that because the good news is God's good news for sharing, flaws or deficiencies in us as messengers does not invalidate the message. And the reason for that is in verse 29, Paul says, it is a really good thing that the power, the mighty power of God is from God. It does not come from the moral perfection of the messengers that take that message out into the world. Now, Don't hear what I'm not saying. Doesn't mean you can be a jerk and go around and witness to everybody then because Christians don't have the greatest reputation in our culture. But this simply means that your flaws and my flaws should not prevent us from being a bold witness and extending an invitation because Christ is at work in our city. Christ is at work in the hearts of your neighbors. Christ is at work, and the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people that you go to school with, in your classrooms, in your neighborhoods. And our job is to pray and to pay attention to where God is at work and to join Him in that work. And to remember that we're not the ones doing the life-changing part. That's God's responsibility because it's His mighty power that is at work. And friends, we've already heard in this space today about literally the hundreds and even thousands of people who have already come through the doors of this building and their lives have been radically transformed. And now that torch is being handed to us and we have our part to play at this time in history. And I want church for us to be found faithful in that call. Not perfect. (laughs) We're not going to get everything right, but faithful. Faithful to continue to hold forth the word of truth and life uh, here in this little patch of ground at 19533 64th Avenue. Well, how are we going to do this? Look at chapter 2.
verse 1. Paul continues, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, another neighbor or partner church from the Colossians, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In Christ lie hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I'm far away from you, my heart's with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. See, one of the exciting things that happens when we develop and mature in our faith is that the good news produces good fruit in our lives, individually and then also corporately in the church. Look at all the things in just this short passage that are produced. Encouragement, thanksgiving, a sense of being knit together by strong ties of love, confidence in understanding God's plan, wisdom and knowledge, strong faith that can withstand storms. These are things I want for my life. I want this for our church. We pray this weekly for our church. We need to be a place where people can gather for encouragement when things are hard. We need to be a place that publicly affirms and declares and gives thanks to God for his goodness and for his favor and love poured out so generously into our lives for the sake of the world. And the phrase that kept coming to me in this text is this knit together in strong ties of love. So how many of you are knitters? All right, some of you are. My grandmother was a knitter. And the fascinating thing to me about knitting is you can take all of these sort of very diverse threads. Are they even threads? Yarn? Is it yarn? You can tell I'm not a knitter. <laughs> all of these different pieces. And she would take, my grandmother would take these needles and just start working. And suddenly, as if almost by magic, from all of these balls around her on the floor would come together this beautiful piece of art and this beautiful scarf or whatever it was that she was making. She was knitting them together into something beautiful and useful. Uh, last weekend, uh, Denise and David and, and Meg and I headed down to a conference in North Carolina, and there was a local author, Sarah Bessie, who was there, and she's a knitter. And so she said, I'm going to say something that's just good theology. She said, if Harry Potter has taught us nothing, it's to never underestimate the women who knit. That's just good theology. But this image of knitting together is a powerful one. See, God is knitting us together in a fresh and new way here in this space. And it's like he's knitting us into something that's already been started and ongoing. And now we get the privilege of being those threads that get woven into the tapestry of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his plans and his purpose for us here in this space. And friends, I have a sense that God's just getting started with us. 
from 14 years ago when we launched in the cafeteria at Ari Mountain, and there's some people like Gordon, Myrna, and Rob who were there with us on that day, and some others of you. Then into the gym, then into LEC, and then to the Port Kells, and now here to this space. God is knitting us together into something for, for the sake of the world. Because the world needs to taste and see not just another religious institution or experience. They need to see a people who are knit together in love. They're knit together for a purpose. Clayton and Willoughby in our world need to see people who are confident in God's plan and whose faith sustains them in difficult times. And so the characteristic that we want to have define this era for Jericho Ridge is that image of knitting. All we knit is love. A few of you got it, not many of you. (laughs) And one of the best ways that I know how to celebrate that is coming to the communion table because Jesus modeled this love for us with his own disciples. See, he took the bread which he said represented his body broken for a needy world. And he took the cup, which he said was a sign of his blood, his covenant poured out. Even with those who would betray him, even those who didn't believe were still invited with their doubts and fears and failures to the table. And so when we set our table here at Jericho, I want to remind us that it's not our table. This is the Lord's table. And so Christ sets the agenda for us in terms of reference. And when we celebrate communion, we are remembering the things that God is speaking over his church. He's saying, Jericho, you are accepted because of what I have done, not because what you have done. God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, before we had a building, before Jericho was a church, before any of you came and said yes to Jesus, God demonstrate his love for us. And God also is saying to us in this place today, Jericho, I will strengthen and empower you for witness where you have fallen short, where you have kept silent, where you have not lived up to the things of the invitations I have given to you. Come to the table in repentance, but also come in faith and in courage, asking God for courage and boldness. Because when we come to this table, Christ is speaking something over us, but we are also reflecting something and speaking something back and declaring something to him. And that is simply this. Thank you. We are proclaiming and announcing that God's good work continues in the world. And we are proclaiming and declaring our gratitude that he's invited us to participate in this. And that the arms of God are open wide to receive all who trust in him in faith. And friends, if you're here today, somebody invited you to come and you've never done that before, you've never actually said yes to Jesus, you've never actually said, I actually want to come into a relationship with God. You can do this simply by agreeing with God and saying, today 
I choose to put my trust in you. I acknowledge, God, that my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes have separated me from you, and I want to come home. I want to be part of your family. I want to experience the forgiveness that comes from knowing you. And if that's you today, then the table is open for you. If you've said that and declared that in your life, either today or at some point in the past, then the table is open for you. If you declared that today, come and talk to me before you go. We'd love to give you some things that could help you get started on your journey as well. The worship team's gonna come and uh, Pastor Wally will be here and we'll break the bread. The servers will distribute and I just invite uh, you to come to the table. Sorry, the servers will not distribute. We're gonna come to the table and you're gonna take the bread and you're gonna rip off a piece and you're gonna take a cup and you're gonna take it back to your seats and then at the end of this first song, we will all partake together. So uh, just as you're able and you feel ready and willing, come to the table and then take it back with you and just hold it until we'll all partake together. Uh, let's sing together.